Good morning. How's everybody? Awake? Barely? I'll take care of that for you in a moment. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and this guy will be glad to give you one if you need one. Take your Bibles and or your devices and turn to 1 John, the epistle in the back, chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. I know if you're like me and you've been moved again and angered again by events of the week and particularly what happened in Paris and then we just constantly see things that are going on in our nation and around the world and it reminds me again, if you look at the top of your sermon outline for today, it says, what we're looking at in this particular part of 1 John is loving the hate we share. And we talked about last week, the focus of this is we, we as believers, we as children of God, we as God's representation on planet earth, his chosen institution through which he reveals himself to the world, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, the family of God, we need to hate what God hates. When you see stuff like terrorism, you hate what's going on. And if we're not careful, if you're like me and I have my hand up, you think, man, I, you just hate the people that do this. Now, the sad thing about this, we see how people react and the president, for example, calls it, I believe the quote was, crime against humanity, and clearly it's that, and we, we think, we, we pray, we beg for peace, solutions, and we think everything we could fix. And one of the reasons that I love to share the Word of God, one of the reasons I love that, that, that I get to do what I do is I know the only way our world will ever have any kind of peace is when each human heart is changed by the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we talk about peace on earth and goodwill toward men, and you'll hear a lot of talk about that, particularly in the, Mary and I were just talking yesterday, she said, you realize just a few months ago, our baby girl, who's up here singing today, was in Paris. She could have been one of those people. A poor American girl from California, student, you're just sitting at a cafe or wherever she was, just enjoying her time with another student. She's slaughtered. Just a young life snuffed out because man is evil. We are born with a nature, a propensity to be only interested in self. Now, sometimes it, as you've heard me say, it's worked out in two ways. There's active rebellion against God, we saw a good example of this week. And there's passive rebellion against God, which is just kind of rocking along, and that's worldliness, what we're talking about now, just kind of existing with an attitude 
of me. Number one, what matters? Both are wrong. Both have man separated from God. And yet, you think about what happened in Paris this week and that particular act of terror and other acts of terror. Many of that is done in the name of their God. They consider that an act of worship to slaughter other human beings who've done nothing but just happen to be there and maybe worship in another way. And the point about Jesus Christ is that when he says things like, I alone am God, that's significant. So you need to study that. I was sitting having a conversation with two old, old friends yesterday about that very thing, about a daughter who's college age, she goes to that ungodly institution in Knoxville. <laughs> as opposed to the godly one here at, over on, at Normal in Memphis, where all believers went. And how she grew up in their home. Always in church. Always was hearing truth. And when she got old enough to make her own decisions, she said, don't be throwing that God stuff up at me. Don't be throwing that church stuff up at me. I want nothing to do with that. That's, by the way, the norm. The norm. Statistically proven over and over again that most young people between 18 and 30 who grew up in church choose not to be part of that environment any longer until they get into the 30s and they've got kids and they're going, ah! need help. That's a southern version. I need help. Maybe somebody at that church can do something about these kids. I sure can't. Remember the first, when you had your first child, your young couple, and you're cool, your parents. Mary was, and I were very young. I was uh, 21, and she was 20 when our first child was born. You know how you take that first child and you really don't want to put that one in the nursery. And you love those people. You love Beverly Hodge, and you know Beverly's a good person. And you know, you love Chuck and Janet Lorenz. You know they're good people. And the Grimes and the Brian Lane. You know these are sharp people, but they just my baby. <laughs> then you have that second one, and it's kind of like, I think I can trust them. <laughs> then that third one comes along, and it's like open doors, and boom, good. This one's yours. Let me know when you get through with him. Man, by the time our son came along, anybody that would take him, we were happy. <laughs> Just take him for a while. And then, and then especially as they get a little older, you know, when they're cool, they're, they're children, they're cool, and you know, you're glad you have them at church, and it's very important what goes on over there and over here. But man, by the time they hit across the street, it's like, woo, I sure hope you can do something with them because <laughs> I can't. And if there is a God... Maybe he can do something about it. But I hope as, as we look at this, and again, my heart is that we're encouraged, even though you'll be challenged by the word of God, that you leave encouraged that when the Bible says there's one God, 
one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Like my friend yesterday I was talking to who has the child in, at UT that wants nothing to do with the Jesus stuff anymore. I said, that's okay. Discuss it. Talk about it. When your kids are across the street age, that's what we're going to start calling them, across the street age. Talk to them. Approach them on an intellectual level, not as a child, but as someone who's developing in oh so many incredible ways and scary ways. Challenge them intellectually. Don't tell me you believe in Jesus because that's the church answer that mom and dad want to hear. Tell me the truth. What do you really think? What do you believe? Not what do mom and dad believe. What do you believe? And if you don't believe, let's discuss it. We're not going to kick you out of the house. We're going to be there. But let's discuss it. Because I know when I hit college and Mary and I got married a sophomore year, and when I'd been saved about three years when I started college, and I was challenged immediately to examine my faith by my professors, by the culture. You think it was bad in 1972? What do you think it's like now? You're constantly bombarded with, you're an idiot to be a person of faith. This Jesus Christ stuff, you're just an idiot. No rationale to that at all. So I was really challenged to read people like Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis, and today there's Robbie Zacharias, and on and on, the incredible minds that are out there the challenge to examine your faith. Is it real? Is it trustworthy? Again, that's why you hear me say all the time, the reason we trust Jesus is he's proven himself to be trustworthy, both in the word of God and historically and in my life now. And so when we look at what we're looking at now, loving the hate that we share. What is it that God hates? We began last week to talk about, number one on your handout, God's hate for worldliness. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Let's read these verses and then get back into them. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So last week we began to look at this hate for worldliness and, and the definition of it, and that's kind of where we are. Lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, lust, uh, and the pride of life, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. We talked about the lust of the flesh last week. And let me quickly hit definition again as we move on to the next one. When we're talking about worldliness in Scripture, worldliness is not that you got a car or you got a house or you got money. Those are simply things. Worldliness is a mindset or an attitude of those things are more important to you than Jesus Christ. You may not say it again. It may not be an actively rebellious mindset. It may be a passive mindset of me, getting, 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 and, or just living for the moment, living for me, as opposed to living as I have to be in the world, doing life as a Christian in the way that Jesus Christ would have me do it. 
The Bible says Jesus went about doing good. He went where people were. He met them where they were. He handled situations. He dealt with life just like you have to do. But always his mindset was, I came to serve and to die. That's why we exist. And the reason we hate worldliness is because God hates it. That mindset, that attitude, we talked about the lust of the flesh last week. We're not going to go back and do that. But that's that physical, not sexually immoral, that's part of it. But anything physical that I'm attracted to, it becomes more important to me than the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. So today we're going to look at the second one, the, the, the appeal to the intellect, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And the lust of the eyes is very simply defined this way. It's seeing things through your physical eye and then forming perceptions that lead to all kinds of problems. Seeing, in Greek it means seeing something with the physical eye, forming perceptions, and then acting on those perceptions. Maybe the best example in the Bible of this is David. David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, chosen by God to be the godly king of Israel. He is the, the, what are considered one of the great patriarchs of the faith. The Messiah line, the Messianic line is called the line of David. The throne that Jesus will reign from is called is the throne of David, the great king. But one day the Bible tells us when David as the king should have been out with his army, where was he? He was at home. So number one, he was not where he was supposed to be. And then he began to look on the roof of a woman bathing. Well, when women bathe technically and normally they don't have their clothes on. So he sees Bathsheba. But he doesn't just glance at Bathsheba. He sees through the eyes and he begins to gaze, focus, leer. He sees, but then he begins to long. So through the eyes, he sees something that he knows is wrong. But he pursues it. That's the lust of the eyes. He sees that. He pursues it. Obviously, it leads to adultery. It leads to her getting pregnant. It leads to, her, to him lying to her husband, to him having her husband placed in a spot where he would be murdered simply because he couldn't say no to what he saw. Remember, we're not talking about a chucklehead here. We're talking about the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart who could not say no to what he saw. So if we're not careful, you think it might happen to me? Yeah. Or you? Yeah. That's why your focus has to be your eyes, as Scripture says, are enlightened in understanding what God what have you know? In Ephesians, Paul puts it this way. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of God's calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. See, we gaze, and then we desire to own that. And again, we're not talking about just like with Bathsheba. It could be anything. You look at something, and you have a desire to possess, to own 
to have that as yours, which leads to greed, which leads to more greed. You're just never satisfied. Just keep saying more. I got to have that. I got to have that. And again, not just material things. That's part of it. But it could be, in David's case, it was a person. I want that woman. And as the king, he went and got her. That's what he wanted. He saw, but he didn't take his eyes off of her. You see, we should appreciate as Christians because we know the difference. We should appreciate creation. We should appreciate beauty. We talked about last week with the lust of the flesh. All the desires, the part of being a human being, were given to us by God as good things. But what happened after original sin, we began to take good things like the sexual desire of a man for a woman or a woman for a man that God gave to Adam and Eve then became lust of the flesh. Or we looked at something that God said no. We said, I really, I want that. And it became, I don't care what God says, I want that. That lust of the flesh. And the lust of the eyes is that you see, and I, I need that, I need that, I need that. It's like the old saying, if you're a rich man, what makes you happy? How much does it take? Just a little bit more and a little bit more. And then what happens is that you begin to go through a process like David did. It wasn't just he saw Bathsheba and he committed adultery with her. That wasn't enough. It led to murder. It led to a very difficult life. His own family constantly against him as a result. He couldn't say no to what he saw. You see, that's when God says, I need you to hate worldliness because I need your eyes focused on Jesus as you do life. So you appreciate the beauty of another human being, but you don't possess that human being. You care about them. You want the best for them, not what can I get from them? How can I use them? How can I make it better for me? A Christian's perspective is, I appreciate beauty. I appreciate creation because I understand who the creator is. I know who what he has done. I know what he can do in my life, what he has done, and I want to see that done in the lives of others. So I focus on enjoying it, but not lusting after it. My eyes being enlightened. World's trap number three is the pride of life. And this is simply appeal to your ego. Number one, trap was physical. Lust of the flesh. Number two is intellectual, the lust of the eyes. This one is ego, the pride of life. In Greek, what it means is arrogance. Thinking more of yourself than you should. Thinking you're something that you're not, which leads to hypocrisy, pretending, and the idea, I want other people to envy me. Now, you might not say that. and This one, in many ways, can be very much more passive because it's internal. But it's a mindset that I want other people to look at me and say, wow, look at him. Best example of this in the Bible is how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. I've mentioned it to you time after time, and I know you've never done it, so I'm going to give you another assignment. Read Matthew 23. How many of you read it last week? Say, we're going to do it again. Matthew 23. 
Read it. And if you don't come away from that going, woo, those boys are in trouble, then you're not paying attention. Jesus was discussing with the Pharisees, the most religious people on the planet, the Jewish leaders. They were at the top of the spiritual, economic, and social ladder in all Judea. Judaism, the Jews, they looked up to them, revered them. And here's what Jesus said. Do not worship the way they do. Do not pray the way they do. Do not give the way they do. Do not fast the way they do. They're not your example because they're doing everything for the reward of other men. They want people to look at them <clears throat> and say, wow, I sure would like to be like those Pharisees. It's a tough chapter because here's what Jesus said also in the Sermon on the Mount. They have their reward. They want the pat on the back. They got it. But he also said to them, you're children of Satan and you're going to hell. And which would you rather have? Pat on the back or eternity with Jesus Christ? That's what pride is. The essence of all sin is pride. Is that I want something. And if God has said it's taboo, I don't care. I want it anyway. But here's how we get around that. We know certain things are wrong. Clearly, it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to abuse children. No one argues that. But look what we've done with sexual relations in our country, even in the church. We've managed to rationalize, put aside what Scripture says. But the point is, there's pretty much no taboos anymore in that arena. We think it's crazy. You'll see people marrying their dogs for love. I know you think that's stupid, but it's going to happen. You'll see it, incest. Somehow we'll get around that. Because the Bible says when you start down that road, here's what happens. You begin to accept worldliness, this particular area, the pride of life. You began to look at things that you want, and you figure out a way to say, it's okay. It's all right for them. Not for me, but it's okay for them. And then you began to just kind of accept that, become part of it. And again, I'm not talking about us being legalistic. I'm talking about us being real. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart, the clear teaching of the Word of God, not what somebody's rules and regulations are, What's right? What's wrong? Because eventually what happens is your conscience gets, I'm talking about even if you're a non-believer, your conscience gets so seared that you can't, you can't even tell right from wrong anymore. Romans 1 talks about this a lot. And you end up worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Now for us as Christians, that's why this is so important. We know the difference. We realize Jesus, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is the only non-created entity in the universe. It's the only thing that's eternally existed. Satan is a created being. The entire universe is created. And so we worship the one 
who is eternal. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Once we understand that absolute truth, everything then flows through that filter. And so we can look at the world and understand the lust of it and not give in. We can have eyes that see and appreciate the beauty and not lust after it. We can understand there are things out there that really would appeal to me. Sin is fun, but I understand as a believer what it will do to me. And I say, no, it's more important to me that my whole being is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I beg you, brethren, I beg you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, holy, acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service of worship. And the word body in Greek means not just your flesh and blood. It means your mind and the non-physical part of you. Body, soul, spirit. He says, I beg you, your reasonable response to what Jesus Christ did for you at Calvary is to say, here I am, Lord, take me. Body, soul, spirit. Nothing's going to stop what happened in Paris. Nothing's going to stop what's happening in our nation. The, the attitudes, the bigotry, the hatred, the crime outside the person of Jesus Christ. We can throw money at it. We can try to educate. We can legislate. We can pontificate. Use my word again. A lot of things we can do. But until the person of Jesus Christ changes a life, we're not changing culture. We're not changing culture until we begin to change it one heart at a time. Do you realize that's why you're so important? You think, what can I do? You ever pray? You know, the Bible commands you to pray for those in authority. Do you do that regularly? There's some people in authority I don't like. Neither do you. You're commanded to pray for them. Politics is not going to change a person's life or their political bent. But Jesus Christ can. How do I know? Because he changed me. How do I know? Because he changed history. He is history. And so for us, we need to understand how significant that is. Now look at the verses again. Back to verse 16. All that's in the world, thus the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what direction is this headed? There it is. The direction of worldliness is it's not of the Father. It's of the world. That's where it's going. That's its direction. That's why, again, because you are a Christian, if you're born again, if you're a Christ follower, you have the presence of God with you all the time. So yes, you have to be in the world. But to use a cliche, you do not have to be of the world. And as a matter of fact, God wants you in the world so we can be salt and light in so many different arenas in our world. 
in our community that we can make a difference because we are children of the King of Kings. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. That's what the church is. That's what you are. What a great privilege to go into our world and say, let me tell you what life's all about. John never says, don't be in the world. He says, just don't give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because that spiral will kill you. Here's what will happen to you as a Christian. When you begin to look at worldliness and you develop that mindset, that attitude of me, pride, want, get your eyes off Jesus, you begin to lose the joy. Here's the way David put it. I'll give you another assignment. Read Psalm 51. If you don't read Matthew 23, read Psalm 51. You'll be in tears at the end of it. Psalm 51 is what David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. After he did that, very, very first time I ever spoke in front of a group of people, I was a senior in high school, and I was asked to speak to my peers. And the very first time I did, did it, that's what I spoke on with Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David says this, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, he'd sinned against Uriah. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against his family. He'd sinned against the entire nation of Israel. But the bottom line was, who did he hurt the most? His father. Because he represented the father, just like you do. And all sin is an affront to my dad. And then later in that same psalm, he says this, so poignant. He says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's what happens to you when you begin to get worldly. As you lose that joy of loving Jesus, following Jesus, being everything the Lord wants you to be. Not perfect, but wanting the world. The reason we hate worldliness is we know it's keeping you from Jesus. Restore to me that joy. You begin to lose the joy, and as a result of that, you begin to struggle with your faith, your sin life. You stop being obedient to God. You really think, you know, Randy's just kind of become boring. I don't really enjoy going to church anymore. I, I just, you know, I'll stay at home, watch the guy from Bellevue or somebody else. I'm just not into you know, that Bible study stuff. It, it gets boring. I don't really have a good time. I'm just kind of there. I'm not doing anything. You don't serve. You don't care. It's not important to you because other things have taken the place of your relationship to Jesus Christ. Let me read you a quote from a pastor who was teaching on this subject. The one who walks in the light, the one who is growing in their spiritual maturity, the one who walks in the light and has fellowship with God and his people is not possessed by the love of the world. Rather, they're possessed by the love of God. 
Rather than being preoccupied with the temporal things of this world, they have positioned themselves to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. After all, Jesus asked in Matthew 16, 26, what will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his life? What will a man give in exchange for his life? Why would the heirs of, eternal, of the eternal world concentrate their interests and ambitions on such a transient order? Why should they place all their eggs in such a perishable basket? Why does Christian practice, Christian practice so often fall short of Christian profession? Now look at verse 17, the destiny ultimately of worldliness. The world is passing away and the lust of it. He who does the will of God abides forever. Passing away. All these lusts that preoccupy one who is worldly, they're going to cease to exist. Sin has led to a fallen creation, which ultimately will be redeemed by the return of Jesus Christ. But notice the contrast. He who does the will of God abides how long? Forever. Forever. Here's the idea. Again, you've heard me talk about it many times, and it's so important. Christians live in this life with an eternal perspective looking to the next life. Let me read you a couple of quotes from the Word of God. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Hebrews says this, talking about the patriarchs in the Old Testament. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For here on earth, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Not with eye service, Ephesians says, as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. We hate worldliness because it's the enemy of God. I'm going to share a story with you and then we're going to quit for today. I'll read you a quote from Martin Luther and then I'll share the story with you. Martin Luther said, I've held many things in my hand and I've lost them all. But the things I have placed in God's hands, I still possess. I'm going to read you another quote, and then we're going to be done. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool. Those words were spoken by a guy named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Aka Indians. And he went to them and he tried to share Jesus. And it just, it just, it was so hard. He had said that when he was in college. He goes to the Aka Indians. That's where he is. He's, gives his, he's given his life to go and serve them. They slaughtered him. Murdered him. His wife went back years later to those same Indians. 
shared Jesus with them, saw many of them converted because they saw how she responded to their murdering her husband. He is no fool. He is no fool. The reason we hate worldliness is because it's a mindset. It's not having things. It's a mindset that keeps you focused on self and not on God. We all have to have a car. We all have to have a home. We all have to deal with money. We all have to live and exist. But my focus is those are tools to share Jesus with my world. Here's why. Without Jesus, our world will never get better. Our culture is going down the toilet. And without Jesus Christ, that will not change. You bow your heads, please. Well, we do pause again before you because you're real, not our religious creation. You are God, eternal, only God, the only true God. Lord, I pray that we would, as Christians, for those of us who are born again, we would understand the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life exists, but they don't have to dominate me. They don't have to control me because Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I pray, starting with Randy, that my eyes would be on Jesus so when I see the things Jesus created, I appreciate them, but I don't lust after them. That my mindset, my heart attitude would not be one of pride, but would be one of humility, of giving like Jesus. That I wouldn't see things and say, I want that. I would see things and say, how could God use those through me? Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being a believer, for what my future is in Christ. For all of us as Christians, challenge us, Father, to be in the world but not of it, to be what you want us to be. And Lord, if there's a person seated here who's not a believer, they would say, I need Jesus to change me, change my mind look, my mindset, my outlook, my attitude, my eyes, my flesh. I don't want the sin nature to dominate me. I want Jesus to be my Savior. Forgive me, Lord, and save me. Lord, we, we commit this time to you and pray Jesus would be honored. We pray in his name. Amen.